0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For seniors at STEM School Highlands Ranch, graduation Monday was a celebration of achievement and an acknowledgement that one of their own is no longer with them. The first diploma handed out was for 18-year-old Kendrick Castillo, who died trying to save his classmates when the school was attacked. His best friend picked up his diploma. Here's STEM's executive director, Penny Euchre.
1: On May 7th, We lost our innocence when we lost one of our own, Kendrick Castillo. The painful void is being filled with strength, fortitude, and purpose to continue our quest to never stop innovating, just as Kendrick did every day of his young life. Kendrick Castillo was the best example of STEM character traits. He has inspired all of us to be kind, inclusive, and to strive to be our very best.
0: Each graduate received a carabiner, a symbol that they're forever linked. Salutatorian Ria Rahin acknowledged the students in the classroom who faced one of the attackers.
1: I'd like to thank our heroes, Brendan and Josh, as well as the other students of Room 107, for your bravery and sacrifice in the face of danger. But, But most importantly, I'd like to thank Kendrick for making the ultimate sacrifice for us. I know I speak for the class of 2019 when I say that we will never forget what you did for us.
0: Valedictorian Emma Goodwill encouraged her class to move forward while never forgetting.
1: The
2: events of last Tuesday are not our identity, even though we carry them with us. The ideological foundation of our family and community may have been attacked, but we have the choice whether or not we allow it to crumble. And for the sake of our family, for the sake of Kendrick, I believe we need to choose to continue to respect and love each other fully and fundamentally.
0: And in paying their respects, each speaker also tried to create a sense of normalcy, of a graduation not defined by one event. There was laughter, applies, as we've been hearing, and optimism. Here's engineering teacher Mike Schallenberger.
3: Most of you know I was pretty close to Kendrick. And uh, what I'd like to do is give the graduation speech that I want Kendrick to hear. I want to give the graduation speech that I would have given before May 7th because I really believe that's what he would want.
0: And this is just a taste of what that sounded like.
3: We know that you have the technical and academic aptitude to do very well, but we have also seen you have the compassion and empathy for others to go out and change the world. You can make a difference. We've seen you making a difference. I hope that your compassion and caring for others only grows deeper and becomes stronger and stronger. I hope we all learn to be a little more like Kendrick. And as most of you know how I dismiss you from class every day, some of you for the last seven years. Thank you, and be nice to each other.
0: Highlights from the STEM School Highlands Ranch graduation. Fifty-five asylum seekers arrived in Denver last week. They were bused from overcrowded shelters in New Mexico. And at two in the morning, churches here were ready to help. Pastor Michael Hidalgo of Denver Community Church described the scene. A lot of parents with kids came off the bus. All of them were tired and just wanted to get into bed. The beds were provided through different organizations who gave us sleeping cots, and uh, we were able to get those set up. We have people who are showing up
3: to prepare meals, Uh, We've had people on site working to connect those who are here with us with their family and friends, making phone calls to families, helping them set up needed travel through either buses or through airfare. As for the atmosphere downstairs, it's pretty quiet except for the noise that you'll hear kids running around laughing and giggling. And um, I think everyone's actually enjoying that a little bit.
0: Now, this was the first time Annunciation House, a shelter network based in El Paso, Texas, had transported migrants this far. They just didn't have enough room. And more asylum seekers could be headed for Colorado. To help us understand the scene closer to the border, we're joined by Morgan Lee of the Associated Press. And Morgan, thanks for being with us.
4: Hi, thanks for having me
0: on. So this first group of asylum seekers came from a shelter in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, What's the scene, the state of things there now?
4: Well, Las Cruces has a network of uh, at least three faith-based shelters that are taking in asylum seekers as the Border Patrol drops them off in town there. And they have a capacity for about 100 um, people each night. And the city says that they're getting about uh, 200 each night from Border Patrol. So that's left um, uh, that's left the city there to pick up the slack. And they've got a facility at a former armory with two buildings. Uh, it's actually a former um, Army training center left over from the 60s. Hmm. Um, so it's a juggling act for them uh, uh, day by day. And they get about an hour's notice when um, a, a new... Um a new batch of of immigrants is coming in,
0: yeah, in general, where are these asylum seekers coming from
4: they're in general coming from Central America. they're almost entirely um families, people with children um, and it's uh it's it's what we're hearing about on the national level. it's this wave of people um fleeing violence in uh, principally Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala.
0: And is this scene in Las Cruces similar to other places that you've seen, perhaps in New Mexico or in Texas?
4: Well, a lot of this is the flow through El Paso, um, which is where a huge volume of asylum seekers are coming through the ports of entry there. Um, As you mentioned, Denunciation House is... um, it is a philanthropic group that, that is trusted by the federal government to take on these asylum seekers, help them find their way to families or other sponsor households around the country. Um, but there's usually, you know, a day or two while they can get in touch, uh, get on a phone, find where they're going, uh, get some money to get on a bus or uh or book of flight. Um, and El Paso has been overwhelmed. Sometimes it's as many as uh, 600 or more people being released there uh, in one day. And um, so they've started making arrangements with Las Cruces in southern New Mexico and Albuquerque, um, where, you know, charities, faith-based groups have um, made made arrangements for people to sleep in beds, give them clothes. um a little bag of toothpaste and shampoo, and uh, you know, put them up for just a night or two. Uh, but even that, you know, it's it's putting a lot of stress on communities that just aren't used to this. New Mexico, even though it's the most uh, Hispanic state in the United States, it's really doesn't have uh, as many foreign-born people as say California or New York or Illinois. So um, a lot, you know, in the when something like this kind of humanitarian crisis isn't going on, people are moving through pretty quickly.
0: Um, Uh, I understand that New Mexico actually paid for the bus ride that is uh, of those migrants from Las Cruces up to Denver. Uh, It sounds like the state simply needs options. Uh, Why is Denver a good destination?
4: So the democratic governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, uh, they stepped forward and paid for that bus from Las Cruces, and now they're, they've. It's not clear if they're going to continue to to pay the cost for that. They're asking for donations, mm-hmm. um, but the idea was, uh, as you were asking, that. It's just a good transportation hub. It's, it's a place where flights and buses are readily available. Um, it's a little more robust, than certainly, than smaller towns like Las Cruces. Uh, in the state capital of New Mexico, Santa Fe, the mayor said, you know, we're not, we're not really well equi- equipped. There's no Greyhound bus terminal. The flights are limited. Uh, we're better off just collecting money and, and forwarding it to, um, to Albuquerque or Las Cruces.
0: Now, uh, you mentioned that there may be asylum seekers who have some connection to the United States, some family here. Uh but I imagine for those whose uh, families are perhaps more distant or they don't necessarily have those strong connections, this becomes even more difficult.
4: Yeah, uh, you know, I was down in El Paso last year when one of the first sort of waves of migrants were coming in and uh You know, out of maybe 60 people I ran into, they almost all could find either families, a a distant cousin, or sometimes it was just sort of friends of friends. Hmm. And some of that communication has gotten a little easier in in the era of social media when people can get on WhatsApp and communicate across borders uh, very readily.
0: Is it your sense that more buses are likely headed to Colorado from New Mexico?
4: You know, I was talking to the uh, governor's office yesterday, and uh, it's not clear whether that's going to be a regular thing or not. Um, It's still sort of in the toolkit, but um, they're trying to decide. They have um, made arrangements. They're about to open the state fairgrounds in Albuquerque to take in um, 60 immigrants at a time. That might take a little bit of pressure off, Um, but that facility right now is booked by um, a movie production And uh, at the end of the summer, uh, it's going to be the state fair. Um,
0: I just want to note briefly that uh, migrant children have died after crossing the border into the U.S. Uh, Two of those deaths were in the last few weeks here. Flu and sepsis are among the reasons. Uh, Just briefly, anything you've observed about the conditions they're living in that might explain that?
4: Um, You know, most of, uh, I think, the most dire Health problems are in the hands of federal authorities. When uh, asylum seekers turn themselves in, uh, that's where I think a lot of the health issues are, are being dealt with. The folks in Las Cruces, um, they occasionally will take folks to the hospital. They say, um, but these are folks that have already had a health screening and and received some medical care. Um, so at that point, it's mainly the common cold or. Um, Gastrointestinal stuff from people who aren't used to American food.
0: And of course, the journey itself is uh, very difficult as well and can't be great for one's health. That's Morgan Lee, a reporter for the Associated Press. He's based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Violent extremists weren't always that way. They were radicalized, perhaps as children. Megan Arari-Hughes is trying to figure out how someone's upbringing might lead them to violent extremism. She's part of a research effort called Project Arrowhead. Arari-Hughes is former leader... Uh, in policy at the Institute of National Security Studies. That's at the Air Force Academy. She's adjunct instructor at Arapahoe Community College focusing on terrorism. And welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me, Ryan.
0: Your research involves interviews with young people who were radicalized. They're in this country, either serving sentences or they've done time and been released. Uh, Give us a better sense of the kind of folks you're talking to.
2: Well, we are talking to only U.S. citizens and as you stated, uh, some of them are currently incarcerated. Some have been recently re- recently released. And um, it's just been a fascinating conversation, all ages. Although the questionnaire that we ask these individuals is focused on questions relating
0: to their childhood
2: specifically.
0: And uh, why is that the lens that you wanted to look through?
2: This is a very unique project. There's a lot of de-radicalization programs out there and research that is asking questions about how individuals went down this path. Our particular project is focusing solely on uh, what could have happened during childhood years. Uh, We wanted to focus on that portion of their life because as research has shown, uh, children and adolescents, teenage years, they're very susceptible to groupthink and wanting a sense of belonging and trying to find themselves. And this is a very susceptible age to... Uh, sort of when recruiters swoop in and attempt to radicalize.
0: Now, those you are interviewing, uh, were their plots domestic or were their plots foreign? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, 2014 when authorities intercepted a group of girls boarding a plane for Turkey.
4: Tonight, we know more about three teenage girls from Colorado
0: who were caught possibly on their way to join a terrorist group. So in that case... Uh, The question was traveling abroad to rot devastation, uh, or are you also talking to people who had domestic plots?
2: It's both. We've talked to four individuals so far. Some of the plots have been abroad. Some have gone overseas to join military, various military and extremist groups overseas. Our most current interview was with a young man that had a plot here in the United States to bomb a mall in Texas.
0: To bomb a mall in Texas. But were the influencers behind that abroad or were they here?
2: Both. So in that case, he was radicalized by a 17-year-old that lived in Texas. And uh, they were probably inspired by groups abroad. But um, th- there were no direct ties to extremist groups abroad at that, that particular instance.
0: You know, the father of one of the girls said they'd hoped to end up in Syria and had been recruited by ISIS in the Colorado case. Uh, but I-, I guess I want to be clear. Are the folks you interview exclusively affiliated with, you know, a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda?
2: They are inspired more than affiliated. Got
0: it. Uh, what has surprised you so far in these interviews and d- do they confirm for you that childhood might be the right lens to be looking through?
2: Well, it's too early in our research to know for sure if th- that is a determining factor. Uh, we've, As I've stated, we've only done four interviews so far. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if that is a correlation that we see. But uh, some of the answers have been very enlightening. Um, our, our latest interview, we asked, what could have stopped you from going down this path? This individual is only 15 years old when we interviewed him, 14 when he was incarcerated. And his answer was, I wish I had spoken to a Islamic reformist earlier. He is now speaking to one, a very well-renowned Islamic reformist, Dr. Zudi Jasser works with him. Um, And he is making a big difference in this young man's life. But his answer was, if I had spoken with somebody prior to going down this path, I never would have would have gone down the path that I did
0: someone with a different view of islam is that what that means exactly mm-hmm.
2: yes somebody to to really tell him the the real truth of the quran and and what the teachings say as opposed to a distorted extremist view
0: uh, of course i think of uh, white radicalization um, and that this isn't necessarily connected with Islam. And I wonder if you're looking at that as well as part of this project.
2: We've been asked that before. And uh, we, although we are open in the future to other possibilities, this particular project is only focused on Islamic extremism for various reasons. Uh, number one, our board of advisors have a very specific focus in, in history with uh, Islamic extremism as their specialization. Hmm. And uh, our grant through the Department of Homeland Security for the state of Mississippi uh, is very focused on this as well. So that's why our project will stay centered on this for now.
0: Okay. What are some of the other questions you're asking?
2: Well, we ask about religion. We ask about education. We ask if there were uh, two, two parents in the household. We ask about violence um, while they were growing up. We ask uh, if they had relatives overseas. Um, we ask if they were involved in group sports or activities. The questions just range; they're they're very wide and varied. One interview will last about seventy minutes, strictly sticking to the questionnaire. So it's a, a wide variety of questions. How do you find the
0: subjects?
2: Uh, we find them through uh, our board of advisors has a lot of contacts, which is very helpful. We work with um, counter extremists. Uh, personnel that specialize in this. And so they have contacts. We also reach out to people on our own. Um, I have reached out to a few, uh, individuals here in Colorado and have not heard back, have not been successful so far, but, um, we kind of all take turns, you know, doing what we can to gather up some of these individuals.
0: And the ones who speak to you, why do you think they want to do it?
2: I think they want their voices heard. You know, I think that a lot of these people want to clear their name and they've turned the other cheek. They've taken a different path. Some are very involved in think tanks right now that are focused on counter extremism Hmm. and they get out and they talk about that. And they are very open and honest about their past and what they've been involved with and want to reach other people and and keep them from going down that same path.
0: So does that mean that by the time you interview a subject, they're already de-radicalized? Not all of them. Not all of them.
2: Yes, not all of them.
0: Well, that's fascinating. Uh, that you've done then interviews with people who are not d- deemed de-radicalized, who still have that kind of thinking. And what can you glean from that? I'm curious.
2: Well, they don't come right out and say that they are not de-radicalized. I
0: can imagine. <laughs> but, um... And I also can imagine <laughs> that even that is not clear-cut, you know.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, the answers have varied. They've been across the board so far. And, um, I think that as we continue down this project, you know, through the, through the years, um, the answers that we see are going to be very interesting. We hope to compile all of our data into a nationwide database that law enforcement agencies can use across the U.S. to um, have access to this data. And we can reach other people before they go down this path is our hope.
0: Is it that you're building a profile, in essence, something to look out for if I'm in law enforcement?
2: That's part of it, yes. That will be part of it. Something to look out for and um, just to get the conversation started, to think outside the box and to really focus on instead of after the radicalization takes place and then trying to um, get these people to go down the right path again, we try to go, our questions are centered on before that happens. How can we keep them from going down that path, especially these really young kids that are very susceptible?
0: Uh, of the interviews you've done, and I realize it's limited, this is early in the de-radicalization and interview process, but do they express regret?
2: They do. Yes, they do. Uh, they express regret. And, um, you know, as I stated the last interview, he the, the individual really said, had I talked to somebody before, had I known what this would really be all about, I would have never gone down that path. And he expressed a lot of regret about it. He said he just... He had wanted to be a hero, were his exact words.
0: He wanted to be a hero.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How important is it that they have ties abroad? Or does and I mean family ties perhaps, or does the era of the internet and social media just mean it, it's not important that there are familial ties in places where, say, Al Qaeda is active?
2: Right. I think that it's um, I think that at times there are familial ties overseas, uh-huh. but it is not necessarily the case and doesn't have to be. As you stated, with the internet, with social media, even with video games, some of these individuals were recruited via video game chat rooms. There's The ties overseas don't seem to matter anymore. And the groups that are overseas are calling for attacks at home. So they there's no need for them to even leave the country to ha- be radicalized or to uh, actually attack or have a, a plan. They can stay right there
0: where they are in their home. Thanks so much. That's Megan Arari-Hughes. She's part of Project Arrowhead. The group is interviewing young people who've been radicalized to see what might have led to their extremism. (music) Just when you thought winter conditions were behind us, Mother Nature dumps a fresh batch of snow much to the dismay of some gardeners. Let's get some advice on how to pick up the pieces of tree from Master Gardener Lonnie Godet. I reached her on the phone.
5: Crazy. It's just a crazy morning.
0: Yeah, what have you been up to?
5: I didn't go overnight, which I should have, but I went out at about 4 a.m. with a headlamp to knock snow off trees. And it's just been busy. I'm working from home this morning, and it's a little busy this morning, that's all.
0: Now, why did you go out and knock snow off trees? And is that something people should still think about?
5: Well, they should if their branches are arching way down and they're really overburdened. It really depends on how much snow you had. We had enough. A lot of my younger trees, particularly, and then the ones that have a lot of leaves on them were bent out and over towards the ground. So I take a broom and I kind of gently go up from the bottom and sweep them up from the bottom until the snow falls out. You don't want to whack them with a a broom or a stick or anything really hard, because then you can break them. But if you gently take them from the bottom up or you can shake them out by hand, I did a little of each.
0: On Twitter, we have someone who says, I took my citrus trees outside already. Yikes. Any thoughts for her?
5: Bring them back inside and see how they do. You know, citrus freezes in Florida, and oftentimes they come through just fine, but you may lose fruit if you've had any flowers set already.
0: Okay, another tweet. Uh, This person thought that this was only going to be in the foothills and didn't buy frost blankets. Do you think that's something that gardeners should invest in?
5: Well, if they use them properly, they can be pretty functional. Um, You want to make sure that you do not bag a tree or shrub and tie it around the base. We call those tree body bags. Instead, you want to have them draped over a tree or shrub and then pinned down to the ground around the tree because the ground is what's going to emit heat back up to help protect the tree. As for your vegetable gardens, yeah, they're very useful. You want to support them so that the heavy snow on top of the blanket doesn't smash your seedlings.
0: What else is on your mind with this late snow? Is is it a disaster for your garden or what?
5: Well, it's, it's a problem. I don't think I had anything break because I did go out and get the snow off and shake it out, of, especially with the new growth that's so flexible and and can break off really easily. I've got a couple of buckeye trees I was very worried about, but they both seem to have come through okay. Um, is it a disaster? Well, I don't think I will get apricots this year, and it was setting up to be a really good year for the apricot tree.
0: You don't think you'll get apricots. Explain why that is
5: temperature dropped down low enough that it may kill whatever fruit had started to set.
0: And there's no way to recover from that in a season?
5: Oh, no. No, that has to wait until next year. What else? We'll see again because this could happen again next year. It usually does. Maybe we get some weird weather and apricots on the front range. That's maybe a once every five to 10 year crop.
0: You know, there are a lot of people who are not used to Colorado weather. They may come from somewhere else. So do put this into some context for us. This is this is not unheard of.
5: Not at all. This is normal. This is absolutely normal. In fact, there's a blog I saw a while back had a great photo of May 15th, trees in full leaf. May 15th, trees that hadn't leafed out yet. Um, may 15th, storms. I've had... Tomato plants out already by this time of year, which is always dicey, but I did it anyway and was successful. But some years you take a chance when you start putting out your tender annuals at this time of year. Better to go ahead and plant cold hardy perennials, perennials that have been already hardened off to the weather. It's a really good time to plant those and to plant trees. Uh, You want to make sure you're not working your soil when it's too wet, but otherwise, it's a great time for planting trees, shrubs perennials, but not so good for vegetables. And I brought all my annual flowers in because they're in pots and they're easy to move around.
0: Okay. So when would you suggest putting out tomatoes, for instance?
5: Well, a lot of people say Memorial Day. And some old timers will even tell you not till the first week of June. June. It's really how much chance do you feel like taking? I usually do take the chance, but you have to be willing
0: to lose it. So yours will come out a little bit before the first week of June?
5: Yeah, usually.
0: Okay.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Actually, usually I've already planted them way before now, and I'm out there panicking because I've got too many plants that are already out, and I'm covering things and trying to protect them. But for the most part, this is, you know, from here on out, we should have good weather, but if you really want to be safe, wait until early June.
0: This year, you seem to have some spidey sense about not putting the the tender.
5: Um, I would say it's less spidey sense and more that I'm taking a bit of a a break from the head gardening this summer. I do have a lot of lettuce and char and things that can really handle the cold out there because they receded from last year. But otherwise, I'm focusing on enjoying my garden and watching things bloom, which it's been a great year for spring blooming plants. And it's much less good spidey sense and more, oh, I was already taking a break, so I got lucky.
0: Yeah, I see. Circumstance. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, anything else you'd like to impart before we go, Lonnie, after this late snow?
5: Sure. If you have trees that are broken, the first thing to do would be to check for hazards. Be safe if you're going to trim branches. If a tree looks like it is truly hazardous, call an arborist, a licensed arborist, If it's on city property, check with your city officials first. And then if you're going to do your own pruning, which most of this type of breakage you can unless you have really large limbs, there's some really good documents on CSU's website. There's a plant talk called Pruning Shade Trees, and it talks about the correct way to do a pruning cut so you don't do worse damage.
0: I'll tweet those out. That'd be great. Thanks so much for talking to us.
5: Sure thing. Thank you.
0: Yeah, just tweeted those at Colorado Matters. That is CSU Extension Master Gardener Lonnie Goda.
3: One day this weary winter will be gone. Don't
0: be fooled, it won't be gone for good. Why don't state lawmakers meet year-round? That question came in through Colorado Wonders, just as this year's four-month session was winding down. We put CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland on the case, and first she caught up with the woman who asked this question.
1: Hey, how's it going? I'm Benta. Hi, Benta. Larissa. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Let's just head into that conference room. Perfect. Larissa Smith lives in Denver. She's an author and moved to Colorado four years ago from New York. And she followed the news of the state's jam-packed legislative session that wrapped up earlier this month. And it just seemed so tight at the end in Colorado with all these issues
5: and bills trying to get passed. And I'm just thinking, so why 120 days? It seems so short.
1: We go to all this energy and effort to get people elected. And then they have this little brief time, and then they're gone. The length of Colorado's session is written in the state constitution. It dates back to when the economy was based on farming and ranching. That's why lawmakers met in the winter and early spring, not year-round. But Smith thinks maybe a longer session could prevent some of the partisan fights we saw this year and stalling tactics.
5: All those little gimmicks and hassles, to me it
1: looked like maybe we wouldn't have to do all of that stuff if they didn't feel such a crunch. So what do people who work at the legislature say? Kelly Fritz is a longtime lobbyist for the AARP. Kelly, what are your thoughts? Do you think we should have a longer legislative session? <laughs> no. No. I know of no lobbyist under the dome that would say it needs to be longer. How about shorter? I would love shorter personally because I I think they would get through – the really hard stuff faster. The session begins with a flurry of bill introductions, but controversial measures often get introduced much later, even in the final days of work. Republican Representative Colin Larson is a freshman lawmaker and says he feels the breakneck pace can make it harder to have thoughtful discussions. A large number of lawmakers in both caucuses really do not take time to read and understand the legislation they're putting forward. Kind of my biggest criticism is that we'll get a high number of bills put in front of us, major bills that are dealing with incredibly complicated issues. But Larson isn't sure more time at the Capitol is the answer. I think a better question would be why isn't the session better managed? I think if we had spread out some of these major pieces of legislation, there's something to that. The National Conference of State Legislatures says only a handful of states meet year-round. And the trend has been to make legislative sessions shorter. In the late 80s, Colorado cut its session by 40 days. States are often looking for ways to improve the work their legislatures do. New York recently upped lawmakers' salaries and banned outside employment. That rule is being challenged in the New York courts. Fred Mogul covers Albany for public radio station WNYC.
3: I mean, the main goal quite explicitly was to reduce avenues for corruption and conflict of interest. We've had massive, massive scandals. Everyone thinks their capital is the most corrupt. But in Albany, I would put us up against anyone for uh, top of the charts corruption, both of our assembly speaker and our Senate majority leader convicted on criminal charges. And in
1: Colorado, a lot of people take pride in the citizen legislature. The General Assembly includes plenty of attorneys, small business owners, a pediatrician, ranchers, farmers. Democratic Senator Jeff Bridges says those different perspectives are important, and he believes more time under the gold dome would make things worse, not better.
3: If you look at how folks actually operate,
0: that pressure, knowing that the end of the session is coming, is a big part of why a lot of bills are passed at the end. And if you give us more time, we'll just take more time.
1: And he says the current part-time schedule gives people a much-needed cooling-down period, which he feels is critical when it comes to tackling tough issues and working across the aisle.
0: I think one of the benefits of going January to May is that we have eight months off where we don't have to see each other. (laughs) And tensions rise. Uh, You know, at this point, I, I love my colleagues, all of them, but I am certainly... Uh, Looking forward to not having to see any of them.
1: So after hearing all this, I asked Larissa if she still thinks Colorado lawmakers should lengthen their session. She doesn't know. But she holds out hope. That it would happen in a spirit of better compromise or better listening. But
5: maybe that's just wishful thinking.
1: And even though the session has ended, the political fights continue. Larissa probably isn't the only one who wishes Colorado lawmakers could find a better way to work together for however long they meet. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News.
0: Kiel Bergen of Boulder has a loving family. It's just not the one she was born into. She has no contact today with what she calls her family of origin, that includes her devout Catholic father, whose abuse crossed into torture, and a mother who had stood by him. Bergen's journey through those dark times to the support that she has found as an entrepreneur, wife, and mother is the basis of her new memoir, Wholly Unraveled. And Kiel, welcome to the program.
6: Thank you so much, Ryan.
0: I want to warn listeners that our discussion will include talk of the abuse that you suffered, and it may be difficult for some listeners. I'll just pause there for a moment. As you describe it in the book... Uh, Your father found ways of punishing you physically that were, I think the word is sadistic. At one point, he told you he was going to kill you and shot a gun at you but missed. What do you make of an event like that today?
6: Well, I hope in today's society we'd be talking about it more. I hope that there would be more outlets that people would be able to uh, tell about that abuse that's happening after it's happened. Um, I unfortunately didn't feel safe enough to go to anyone, Um, and so I just endured it, and it made me stronger for it.
0: But it doesn't necessarily make everyone stronger. That is to say, there are people who don't survive the kinds of things that you survived. I I wonder if you're surprised you're alive today.
6: If I know one thing about myself, it's that I'm resilient. But I do believe that we all have that resiliency inside. I really honestly believe that. We just have to know we're worthy and worthy of having a happy
0: life. But you have to get that message at some point. When did that message come to you, that you're worthy?
6: It didn't come for me until I was in my 20s. I write about it in Holy Unraveled. For me, it was about being silent with all of that abuse that had happened to me. When I got silent, my childhood got very loud, and I knew that I had to heal it.
0: When you got silent, your childhood got loud. You talk about not having outlets to discuss what was happening to you. I mean, you certainly didn't have those outlets in your own family with other members of your family. Why do you think those outlets were closed off to you? Or that the fear was so great you couldn't turn to anyone? Just say a little bit more about that.
6: I don't I would never say that I believed I was in a normal situation but I would look around at other families and think well I wonder what happens inside their family behind closed doors because every th- all the abuse that happened to me was behind closed doors
0: There was there was one image of your family sort of exposed to the public the forward facing and then there was what happened at home
6: Correct I grew up in a very affluent home 10,000 square foot home across the street from the beach my dad you know, was a very uh, successful corporate attorney. We looked great on the outside.
0: And he w- was a man of faith. You were a family of faith.
6: Absolutely. My dad was head of a uh, kind of a Catholic cult uh, back in the 70s with the charismatic renewal. Um, there were some times where we would have to be either speak in tongues to be released from the dinner table or get slain in the spirit. Two things I had no idea how to do, so I had to fake it.
0: Get slain in the spirit. Explain what that is. Uh, the,
6: the belief is that the Holy Spirit comes down and touches you, and the feeling of ecstasy is so big that you fall to the ground.
0: So this is something that you would try to act out, to, to sort of demonstrate to your father that you were connected?
6: Yes, that's correct. To, to make sure that I was still part of the fold.
0: But I, I guess what you're saying is that the, the optics of your family looked great. And what was happening behind closed doors was terrible, and you maybe just assumed that that was the the reality for all families.
6: I think, in a way, I I I was hoping it wasn't for all families, but I would be. It's because it's kind of why I have such great intuition now, because I would watch these families and say, "Is it really happening there?" I would love to have sleepovers because then I would get a whole idea of how the whole family system worked at other families. Hmm. And um that didn't happen very often. I wasn't allowed to have sleepovers very often, but
0: you were almost a sociologist, like eager to just take in what other families were experiencing.
6: Correct. I loved to watch. I still love to watch people. It's why fundamentally this story is about healing and it's about re architecting the life that you're supposed to really supposed to live.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Boulder entrepreneur and author Kiel Bergen. Her new memoir is called "Holy Unraveled. Um, It is very much about the abuse that she suffered as a kid um, and how she overcame that. Uh, So I mentioned that you have no contact with your birth family today. How do you understand, especially your father, though, today?
6: I have done so much work on trauma abuse in my own life, and understand is a a hard word. I don't know that I'll ever understand him, but Mm. I know that I've forgiven him. In a deep place in my heart, I wish him peace, because he must have been tortured to do the things that he did.
0: How difficult was it to come to a place of forgiveness? For this man who, um, you know, I I won't get into any more specifics, but he he just seemed to invent ways— to punish you, uh, one more kind of gruesome and strange than than the next.
6: Forgiveness comes with a lot of work, but I believe it was only hurting me to not forgive him. I had to forgive him, and a huge way to forgive was for me to write it down, for me to tell my story. Because I believe when we say the stories that, especially the ones we don't want to say out loud, that begins our healing. And that allowed me to heal and allow me to forgive my dad because the, the the pain was only hurting me until I forgave him.
0: Well, and that makes me wonder how it was to write this book and to go into excruciating detail with yourself about what happened.
6: No, oh, that was intense. I I was committed to bring the reader with me and not save myself and say the end first. And so for me, I had to relive it all. And the way I did that was... Depending on the person who was it was hurting at the t- that was in the story at the time, I would print their picture, I taped it to my computer, and I would write as I was looking at them.
0: So, so this that, was true of your father. This would have been true then of your siblings.
6: Yes, true. Everyone.
0: And you would sit writing with an image of them.
6: Yes. How did that help? It took me deep into the past. It took me right into that moment. I was able to write. It was as if the like the dialogue was coming and the setting was coming. Everything flooded back when I could see the pictures.
0: Were the pictures of them as young people or as older?
6: As young people, as so, the ages when it happened.
0: You talked about coming to a place of forgiveness with your father. What about your mother? I mean, I mentioned that she stood by as your father abused you. But she also stood by as others abused you. I mean, you write about being raped by a young man that you were essentially forced to date. Why do you think your mother stayed silent?
6: I think my mom fundamentally wants to believe that everything's okay. I think my mom was, I know that my mom was the hardest one for me to forgive. Hmm. Because a mother is there to protect their children. And I never felt protected. I felt forced to smile, but not protected.
0: What was it like looking at the image of her? Describe the image for us of your mom that you used as you wrote.
6: Um, she's standing to my right, and uh, my father's screaming at me right before he hits me. And she just, look. it's as if she was looking past me, not really seeing me. And I think that's where... A lot of my worthy issues came as I didn't feel worthy because I wasn't
0: seen. Uh, you were a part of a large family one of, one of eight children. Seven. Seven. Okay. Uh, you aren't really in contact, as I said. What is it like to lose so many connections?
6: Well, on one side, it's devastating. I, I, there's a there's a tie to your family that, in some ways, can never be broken. I love. I love each of them and have forgiven them, but I couldn't live this authentic life I'm living now and be in touch with them. Those two couldn't exist.
0: Even with your siblings, tell me about that. I think that there's often a feeling like, oh, this is someone who endured something similar to what I endured. So there's going to be a natural connection there, a natural simpatico. Uh, How was it for you?
6: Um, All of my siblings are still... um, very much entrenched in their religion, and I'm not against religion, but it doesn't fit for me, the way that they live that way. And so when I divorced, um, I'll just put it this way, one of my sisters left a voicemail, excuse me, saying, we can't be in heaven together anymore because you're divorcing, and so I can no longer speak to you on this earth. And so that was the last time I spoke to her.
0: Do you consider yourself Catholic today?
6: I do not. I don't have anything against the Catholic Church. I think some of their traditions are fantastic, but they don't fit for me. The rules don't don't fit for me. But I'm very spiritual.
0: I understand your father has reached out to you since the book was published. Yes. How'd that go?
6: Um, he said he wanted to get together to talk um, and say, he said, uh, you know that I was, you were always my favorite, and I just want to talk about it. And we won't talk about the book, and I won't ask you for money. And I... Have chosen not to respond right now.
0: I'd like to hear a passage from your memoir, Akilbergen, and Holy Unraveled*. So this takes place at Madonna House. It's a Catholic retreat, I think, in Canada, where you made great strides in healing from the abuse, uh, and you find yourself in tears. Go ahead and read that.
6: I had known tears of pain, tears of denial, and tears of fear. These were different. They were tears of release and they were running down my face more impertinently than any other tears before. These simple drops touched my skin with forgiveness. Only now they could give me worth instead of emptiness, power from survival, and connection instead of dark separation. I gave myself permission to be me, whoever that would be. I promised to live by my essence instead of my past. For the first time, I loved myself.
0: When you begin to love yourself, uh, do you find that others love you more easily? I wonder uh, to what extent that paved the way for the family, not that you were born into, but that you now embrace.
6: Absolutely. I believe when we become our authentic self, we have this magical gift to be a teacher and to be the student. So you can absorb other people's wisdom and give your own experience and strength and hope to other people.
0: You were a founding partner for a digital media business that generated $35 million in annual revenue, have also worked with Fortune 500 companies. Uh, Today, you're working with another company you founded, B-Tribes, which helps women rebuild their lives. How common do you find your story to be?
6: I find abuse to be common, but people will come up to me now and say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I didn't have that abuse. And I say, no, 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 stop. Whatever abuse you did suffer, it's all that is that was the worst that happened to you. And so that's the same, you know, and so I think it's a an equalizer abuses. And I think it's funny.
0: I had a friend who used to say, don't compare pain like pain is pain. Pain is that is what I hear pain. you saying?
6: Pain is pain and grief is grief. And like Rumi says, grief is the garden of compassion. And so I I really, my dream is that people start telling their stories more so that we can all heal together and re-architect our life and have this radical transformation into who we're really meant to be in the world.
0: Thanks for spending time with us. It's nice to meet you.
6: It's wonderful to meet you too.
0: Kiel Bergen lives in Boulder. Her new memoir is Wholly Unraveled. And uh, you can read an excerpt at CPR.org. We'll post that later today. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.